0: It's the Media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. So what would you do if you were one of the richest people in the world? Well, if you're Elon Musk, you go on Saturday Night Live. We'll talk about that later. If you're Jeff Bezos, you build a yacht. You build a very big yacht. A yacht so huge that the average mortal just can't even wrap his head around it. So Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, according to Bloomberg, is having a special yacht built in the Netherlands... Uh, more than 400 feet, multiple desks, a yacht so big that it comes with another yacht as an accessory. And the accessory yacht has a helipad. His girlfriend is a hel- uh, helicopter pilot. So, uh, you know, this is, for this, is it's a relative drop in the bucket, given Bezos' great wealth. But um, the thing is expected to cost more than $500 million, which uh, is twice what he paid for the Washington Post. So a boat is worth more than a newspaper? That's hard for me to swallow. A sad farewell to Bo, uh, the Obama's dog, who passed away, I guess, over the weekend. Bo always got good press. I guess he was a good dog, unlike Major Biden, who doesn't always get good press. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, know this guy's name. Uh, he has been, in my estimation, the best baseball columnist on the planet, Tom Boswell, longtime sports writer uh, and sports columnist for the Washington Post. He's retiring now. He wrote a farewell column that I found very moving. 50 years in the job, half a century of covering all of this stuff. Boz, as everybody calls him, there's another uh, colleague of his in the Post today, talks about the incredible preparation that Boz brings to the job. He's got these color-coded notebooks with all kinds of statistics on everybody in every sport, though he's primarily known for baseball. And uh, Boz himself said, you know, he, he fulfilled some of his life goals by seeing the Washington Capitals win the championship in 2018, by seeing the Washington Nationals win the World Series in 2019. But... He's kind of done it all. He's in his 70s. And he said, you know, it takes a lot more energy now to do the things that I used to do. I I mean, the way the pros that this guy produced on deadline uh, uh, during and after big games, just, you know, I just admired it on so many levels. Uh, This new AP poll out. President Biden with a 63% approval rating today, according to this Associated Press poll. He gets uh, approval of of 71% on his handling of the pandemic, and that includes 47% of Republicans. This poll might be an outlier. Every other poll I've seen, Fox, Washington Post, et cetera, uh, has had Biden in the low to mid-50s, 52, 53, 54. So either he's gotten a lot more popular or this poll is weighted in such a way that uh, the number is a little bit inflated. Uh, As we know, all polls are snapshots. Next week, next month, you know, Biden could be down. But right now, a little over 100 days in, you'd have to say if you just base it on the polling numbers in this polarized society, I mean, nobody gets an 80% approval rating anymore. Um, I guess you'd say he's off to a good start. Meanwhile, I can't get over this pipeline cyber attack extortion thing. It just seems extraordinary. And while it's getting plenty of coverage, it seems to me that, Something of this magnitude should be like the lead story every hour. I still can't wrap my head around it. So if you haven't tuned into this, there's this pipeline, the largest pipeline between New York and Texas, an oil pipeline, was shut down uh, over the weekend because of a cyber attack. And it's not clear when it's going to reopen. It carries something like 45% of the oil uh, to the East Coast. Now so far, it's had relatively little effect because there's a lot of reserves uh, in many of these uh, places along the East Coast. But, you know, who knows how long that will last before prices start skyrocketing. Um, and so whether it's diesel fuel, gasoline or jet fuel, there's some concern that some airports could run out of fuel. There's some analysts warning that if this goes on for quite a while, you know, prices will really soar. Some smaller airports may run out of jet fuel. The uh, the pipeline was actually shut down on Friday. The company that runs it saying it had been the victim of a ransomware attack by a criminal group. Meaning, you know, the hacker comes along, shuts down the uh, computer network required to run these things and says, uh, you know, you you have a nice little network here. You don't get it back until you pay us a ransom. I mean, this is the stuff of like a C-level movie thriller. It's a 5,500-mile pipeline obviously underscoring the nation's vulnerability to this sort of thing. And there's been several different uh, news organizations reporting that this, uh, the, the, the folks behind this are called Darkside. That's not exactly a subtle name. Uh, a collective of Russian hackers who steal data from victims, put it up for ransom, engage in other kinds of cyber extortion, Uh, And look, if this is a criminal group within Russia, you know that somehow it's tied to the Kremlin because nothing goes on in Russia without Putin's approval. So on so many levels, this is really troubling. Uh, You know, another story that uh, broke uh, over the weekend, and I was surprised it wasn't a bigger story on television, and I think it's a really important story, and we did it on Media Buzz on Sunday. Hope you got a chance to see the show. If not, uh, the segments uh, by now should all be online on my Twitter or Facebook or the show page or the show's Twitter, uh, Twitter and Facebook. And that is the revelation that the Trump Justice Department had secretly obtained the phone records of three Washington Post reporters who were working on what Trump calls Russia, Russia, Russia. Now, the, phone re- the time period for the phone records in question were the early months of 2017, when these three reporters published a story saying that after the election, but before Donald Trump took office, then Senator Jeff Sessions, who of course would go on to become AG, uh, had had conversations with the Russian ambassador to the US, U.S., Sergei Kislyak. And this became a major focus of the Russia investigation, uh, the Mueller investigation, and all of that. Now, what's striking about it is two things. One is that the decision that it was okay under DOJ guidelines to go ahead and get court approval to get these phone records actually happened in 2020 under Attorney General Bill Barr. So it's during the campaign in as vile Russia. The Russia thing has sort of played out, which makes you sort of wonder, is this an utterly political decision by Attorney General Barr? The Biden Justice Department put out a statement sort of defending this. I guess sometimes you feel the need to defend what happened in a previous administration, even you yourself would not do it. But I also have to point out, as upset and as, as chilling as this is, I mean, you get your phone records, and obviously it's an attempt to get sources, and what justice is now saying is, well, this wasn't really aimed at the reporters, this was aimed at the sources, because it is illegal to leak, and these were classified U.S. intelligence excerpts, according to the stories themselves, So I understand, you know, reporters are in a, a kind of a unique position. They can receive this stuff. It's not a crime for them to receive or publish it, but it is a crime for people in government to leak it. I have to hasten to add that the Obama Justice Department did the exact same thing. The Obama Justice Department, and later said it was revising its rules to make this more rare, secretly obtained phone records and email records and personal email records uh, from reporters for the AP and Fox News. In the case of Fox, it was my former colleague James Rosen, and that was uh, I was highly critical of that at the time. So were lots of journalism organizations. Uh, and so forth. uh, Here, I'm not not seeing as many speak out, but if you criticize the Trump Justice Department for doing this, you've got to criticize the the Obama Justice Department for doing the exact same thing. All right, let's get down to work here, folks, on this Monday. Story number one, New York Times. I mentioned last week that the New York Times was almost bipolar, because uh, early in the week, there was this big front page story about how the U.S. is never going to get to herd immunity, uh, at least not any time in the foreseeable future because not enough people were getting the vaccine and you also have these nasty little vaccine variants. And then later in the week, there was a a story in the same newspaper saying that, uh, hey, this is great because uh, the the death rate is way down, new cases are way down, and uh, the whole country is opening up and the numbers are just plummeting and a lot of states are not even having any new coronavirus cases on certain days and New York City is opening up and that's really what I think is behind it if you get so much of the media concentrated in New York. So today there is a kind of a hybrid story that deals with both. So for example, uh, actually two different stories in the Times Today. Early in the pandemic there was hope that the world one day would achieve herd immunity, the point where the coronavirus lacks enough hosts to spread easily. But over a year later the virus is crushing India with a fearsome second wave and surging in countries from Asia to Latin America. So this has more of a global focus. Experts now say it's changing too quickly, new, more contagious variants are spreading too easily, and vaccinations are happening too slowly for herd immunity to be reached anytime soon. That means if the virus continues to run rampant through much of the world, it is well on its way to becoming endemic, there's a scary word, an ever-present threat. Here's Dr. David Hyman, a professor of infectious disease at the London School of Hygiene. He says that while the outbreak in India is capturing the most attention, the pervasive reach of the virus means the likelihood is growing that it will persist in most parts of the world. And that's pretty depressing. Um, But here's this second story in the Times, which takes a different view. It's not that they're opposed. It's not that they're contradictory. It's just a different angle on the same story. It has anything to do with vaccinations. So now there's a new and vexing dilemma for states trying to vaccinate people against COVID-19. What to do when the supply of the vaccine greatly outstrips demand? So this is the most frustrating situation that I can possibly imagine. I mean, as frustrating as it was, let's say January, February, when there weren't enough doses of the vaccine for everybody who wanted it and it was impossible to get an appointment. Everyone was scrambling. You had to be in a certain group and all of that. And by the way, this thing is not over. I still know people who are getting COVID-19, colleagues and others. Um, So now several states that were so desperate for as many doses as they could possibly get are now just awash in unused doses. The Times says that as demand dwindles and supply continues to ramp up, You know, some states are saying, hey, federal government, don't send us so much of this. Um, So, for example, Colorado and Maryland are still requesting their full allotments, but others are cutting back. North Carolina reduced its deliveries by 40 percent just last week. Connecticut asked for 26 percent of its full delivery. South Carolina asked for just 21 percent. Why? Because they can't give it away. They can't get anybody to take these. So they're saying they don't want to be stuck with this huge these huge amounts of COVID-19 doses, if they can't get people to sign up, walk in, go to the drugstore, the pharmacy, the county clinic, the MassVac site. Um, at the end of last month, Arkansas asked to halt its shipment completely for one week. That's really something. And the governor of Arkansas uh, is saying that the state will fully reopen next month. That's great. Meanwhile, in New York City, Mayor de Blasio saying this is going to be the summer of New York City. Well, that's okay. And then comes the caveat. Well, despite these signs of optimism, optimism, some public health officials are worried that the slowing demand for vaccines could lead to lingering problems, including hospitalizations and deaths that are now preventable. So here is the Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson, uh, saying he set a goal to vaccinate 50% of his state's population in the next 90 days. And he says if we don't do that, those vaccines might go to Massachusetts because there's a higher acceptance rate there. So this is just uh, unbelievable. Here's a guy from uh, John Hopkins according to saying, it's actually what we expected to happen. Well, if it's what we expected to happen, then why didn't we plan for this phase? I know the Biden administration is trying to take some steps, such as giving more of these doses to doctors, because people trust their doctors, and when they're going to their doctors anyway, they can get a dose. But there are problems. For one thing, obviously... Uh, Doctors can store huge amounts in their offices. Also, there are storage issues. You need certain refrigeration levels for some of these vaccines. And um, it just seems to me now they're talking about mobile clinics, like this was all constructed for a world in which lots and lots of millions and millions of Americans were dying to get this vaccine. I shouldn't say dying. They were desperate to get this vaccine. Now you have the opposite. You got more vaccines than people who want them. Because why? Well, there's lots of reasons. It's become political. More Republicans and conservatives are reluctant. Some people are just like, hey, when I can get around to it, some people are, would have to travel long distances. Uh, And they're busy. They have jobs. Or the very fact that uh, the states and cities and counties are opening up and making it seem like less of a crisis. Therefore, paradoxically, they say, well, you know, maybe I don't need it after all. Um, Anthony Fauci was on a couple of Sunday shows on ABC's This Week. Uh, He was asked about relaxing indoor mask mandates. Fauci says, I think so. I think you're probably going to be seeing that as we go along and more people get vaccinated. The CDC will be, you know, almost in real time updating their recommendations and guidelines. But yes, we do do need to start being more liberal as we get more people vaccinated. But then he says, um, U.S. is averaging about 43 cases a day. That figure will absolutely go down with more vaccinations, but we've got to get it much, much lower than that. When that gets lower, the risk of any infection, indoor or outdoor, diminishes dramatically. So the, I blame the messaging here because you know, you know, the president's always wearing a mask outdoors, and and Fauci, I think he's changing his message right now. Had been saying, you know, hey, everybody should get vaccinated, but you know, you still need to wear your mask, and even unless you're with other people in your family who've been vaccinated. It just didn't sound, it didn't send the message to people that if you got vaccinated, you could do a whole bunch of things. You could go visit your grandkids, you could travel, you could get on a plane without, you know, all of this stuff. It doesn't mean if you're in a crowded store that you shouldn't wear a mask, I'm not saying that. But I do think they didn't make it very attractive. All right, let's move on to number two. Well, uh, it looks like now Wednesday is the day when Liz Cheney will be kicked out of the Republican leadership. Everybody knows what's happening now. Kevin McCarthy, who obviously had been plotting this behind the scenes, went on Maria Bartiromo's show just before mine yesterday and formally endorsed Elise Stefanik as the successor. Obviously, they want a woman to uh, replace the only woman in the House GOP leadership who is being um booted out because of her very strong rhetoric against Donald Trump and insisting that the 2020 election was not stolen. And as we talked about at some length last week, uh, this has become a proxy war and a litmus test for the Republican Party. And Donald Trump has put out statements every day, sometimes twice a day, about more and more and more about how the election was stolen from him. So I say If you want to blame Liz Cheney, and see, even some of her allies are saying she's been really stubborn about this for pushing this issue, the other person who's keeping it in the news is the 45th president of the United States. He's talking more about 2020 than he is about 2022. The reason I bring this up is that there was some news uh, at the top of a Washington Post story over the weekend that I just found fascinating. And it sounds like it came from the Cheney camp. Uh, Liz Cheney had been arguing for months that the Republicans had to face the truth about Trump uh, actually losing the election, uh, lying about the election, according to her, bearing responsibility for the uh, riot at the Capitol. And she went back in April to a Republican Party retreat to listen to a polling briefing. That's when she realized the refusal to accept reality went much deeper. So when the staff was doing this briefing from the NRCC, that's a National Republican Congressional Committee, they were talking about the group's polling in core battleground districts, but they left out a key finding about Trump's weakness. Being questioned by a member of Congress, they wouldn't divulge the information even then, according to two people familiar with what transpired, telling the Post that Trump's unfavorable ratings were 15 points higher than his favorable ratings in these core districts. Of course, he's not on the ballot in 2022, but if he's underwater in his popularity, that's kind of an important data point. Um, So the Washington Post, I guess, later obtained the full polling briefing and found out nearly twice as many voters had a strongly unfavorable view of the former president as had a strongly favorable one. Now, that's all voters. It's not just Republicans. Republicans. Uh, So Liz Cheney was alarmed, she told others, in part because Republican campaign officials had also left out bad Trump polling news at a March retreat for ranking committee chairs. Both instances, she concluded, demonstrated the party leadership was willing to hide information from their own members to avoid the truth about Trump. Well, fascinating if that finding was held back even when uh, the staffers were questioned by a member of Congress. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzBeater coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's move on to number three, the Kentucky Derby fiasco, the mess, the travesty. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is part of the triple crown of horse racing. This is like a game of the World Series or the Super Bowl or the NBA playoffs being fixed. The winner of the Kentucky Derby, Medina Spirit. The win stands for now, but the... Kentucky Horse Racing Commission is conducting an investigation after that horse tested positive for drugs. I mean, there hasn't been a scandal like this at at this level of competition. Since 1968, Medina Spirit failed a post-race drug test, which, by the way, how stupid do you have to be to drug the horse knowing that a a, a drug test right afterwards is part of the regimen? So Churchill Downs has suspended the trainer. He's a Hall of Fame trainer named Bob Baffert. That happened yesterday. Uh, not that horse racing is the cleanest sport, but this really um, blackens its reputation even further. So Baffert is banned based on this drug finding. Uh, if the finding is upheld, then Medina's spirit title will be stripped and the second place winner, Mandalone, will become the winner. Uh, Here's a statement from Churchill Downs. To be clear, if the findings are upheld, Medina Spirits' results in the Kentucky Derby will be invalidated, and Mandalone will be declared the winner. The track said the failure to comply with rules and medication protocols jeopardizes the safety of horses and their jockeys. Churchill Downs will not tolerate it. Churchill Downs will immediately suspend Bob Baffert from entering any horses at Churchill Downs. So, uh, in a statement, Baffert's attorney... Uh, says that he's going to cooperate with this. Uh, Baffert's statement says, I intend to thoroughly and transparently investigate the matter to determine how this could have happened. I got the biggest gut punch in racing for something I didn't do, Baffert said. He's saying this as he's been framed. And it's disturbing. It's an injustice to the horse. I don't know what's going on in racing right now, but there's something that's not right. I I don't feel embarrassed. I feel like I was wronged. We're going to do our own investigation. We're going to be transparent with the commission. Here's a little problem with that statement. It turns out that um, this is the fifth horse uh, trained by this guy Baffert that has failed a drug test in just over a year. So that kind of cast a shadow on his uh, protests and his denials, you think? I do. I mean, I don't want to jump the gun here. Guess who weighed in on the Kentucky Derby? Joe Biden? No, Joe Biden doesn't do that kind of thing. Donald Trump took a break from talking about the 2020 election and talking about Liz Cheney, who he calls a warmonger, to put out this statement. So now even our Kentucky Derby winner, Medina Spirit, is a junkie. Spelled J-U-N-K-Y, filled with Junk. This is emblematic, says the former president, of what is happening in our country. The whole world is laughing at us as we go to hell on our borders, our fake presidential election, and everywhere else. So first of all, I love that he's got this grand unified theory that because a horse may have been drugged, at this admittedly important Kentucky Derby race, uh, the entire country is just in a tailspin uh, we're national embarrassment uh, borders, he mentions. And, you know, he works in the fake presidential election. So the Kentucky Derby becomes the vehicle, shall we say, for the former president to ride in and enter the arena and complain once again that he actually won the 2020 election. Yeah, the election that Joe Biden got what, eight, seven million more popular votes and won um, a clear majority in the Electoral College. Um, Look, I know a lot of people, Republicans, I I think a lot of Republican lawmakers who are afraid to cross Trump on this just don't want to be primaried. I don't think they really believe there was widespread fraud in the election. I do believe, based on partisan passion, that there were millions and millions of Republicans out out there, polls show this, that do believe that the election was not conducted fairly. But nevertheless, you know, there comes a point where you have to accept that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president, 46th president of the United States. I mean, in the case of 2000, Bush v. Gore, you know, 536 votes in Florida, could have tilted the election the other way. I mean, here you have state after state that even if Arizona was wrong, then you had Pennsylvania. Uh, And even if um, Colorado was wrong, you had Pennsylvania, you had uh, these other states. Um, where Biden, you know, sometimes by a small margin, sometimes by 50,000 votes, won the election. All right, number four, let's talk about the schools, because it's become a common uh, Republican refrain, we have to open the schools, we must open the schools, and I could not agree more. Uh, But according to this piece in the New York Times, you can quibble with this, but it actually opens up a new debate. Only a relatively small slice of American schools remain fully closed. Fully closed as in you got to sit at home and and learn from a computer. 12% of elementary and middle schools, according to a federal survey, as well as a minority of high schools. Now, I do have to add that some of those are hybrids. You know, in other words, you're not there five days a week, maybe you're there three days a week, and then two days learning at home, or one week on, one week off. So it's not like it's fully opened up, but still... Only 12% of elementary and middle schools and a minority of high schools are fully virtual. But the percentage of students, this is really important, learning fully remotely is much greater because you have the option at these schools to say, you know what, I don't feel comfortable coming to class even though you're having physical classes, so I'll just stay home. So according to this same survey, more than one-third of fourth and eighth graders, I guess that was like the target group, an even larger uh, percentage of high school students remain learning at home. Majority of black, Hispanic, and Asian American students remain out of school. Majority. Uh, these disparities have put, you know, the, uh, the school boards and policymakers in a tough position planning for the school year that starts in this fall. Because even though the pandemic seems to be coming under greater control, as we discussed, Uh, Many superintendents say fear of the virus itself is no longer the primary reason that students are opting out. So, what could it be? Um, First of all, a lot of kids uh, and parents changed their lives during the past year in ways that make going back to school difficult. For example, teenagers from low-income families have taken on heavy loads of paid work because in many instances their parents have lost their jobs or aren't making as much as they used to. So they may say, look, learning at home kind of works. I can still be in school. This way I can work, uh, you know, at the local supermarket or at the local factory or whatever, at the local uh, hospital, and earn some money from my family. Uh, And now there's a new term for this school hesitancy. Others may just feel, you know what, I like it better this way. You know, I don't have to get on the school bus for half an hour to get to school and I can just learn from home. And so what do you do? Do you force these kids to come to school? Do you make attendance mandatory as it was pre pandemic? I I don't have the answer. I haven't had a chance to think about this. Uh, Others see the phenomenon as a social and educational crisis for children that must be combated. I mean, I don't think there's any question that you learn better in a classroom. And I don't think there's any question that, you know, because of friendships, after-school curriculums and things like that, that, you know, is much better socially and for the development of of children and teenagers as growing into fully uh, formed human beings, it's better to be in school. That, you know, the the remote learning was uh, something that was thrown together not very successfully in a lot of school districts in order to protect the health and safety while this pandemic raged. But now that's coming to an end. So I think we'll be hearing a lot more about that. And finally, number five, Elon Musk doing Saturday Night Live. Well, I didn't see the whole thing, but I saw the monologue and I saw uh, clips from a couple of the skits. I thought he was pretty good. Um, there was a funny line uh, that I actually played on Media Buzz where Musk comes out and says, look, I, you know, reinvented the business of electric cars. I'm sending rockets to the moon. Did you also expect I was going to be a normal, chill dude? Um, so it was a lot of self-deprecating humor. He talked about having Asperger's, and he said that he was the first host in SNL history to come out and say it's Asperger's, at least those that we know of. Um, And I thought that was significant. I mean, we've always known he's kind of a really eccentric guy. He he owned up to posting weird stuff on Twitter. Um, Look, he actually, I thought, had pretty good timing and comic delivery. And so I come back to this, and also there's this whole thing with Dogecoin, which I do not even pretend to understand, but it's the new hot cryptocurrency, which I also don't pretend to understand. But he was doing the, you know, he came on as a guest playing somebody else on Weekend Update, like, explain what Dogecoin is. Oh, it's this cryptocurrency. You know, was, the whole idea was that he couldn't explain it very well. Uh, and finally, the SNL anchor said, so it's a hustle, right? And the Elon Musk playing the character said, yeah, it's a hustle. Well, that, bit of jokery, on Saturday Night Live caused the value of Dogecoin to plummet by 30%. Holy w- uh Anyway, so why was it so controversial? So the Atlantic has a review of the episode, didn't feel worth the fuss, it wasn't offensive, redemptive, memorable, even entertaining. Yet, the cloak of mildness and mediocrity can be useful for someone whose true influence has little to do with comedy or charm. That is true. By building electric cars and sending rockets to the moon and to Mars... It doesn't depend on Elon Musk being a charming guy. The pundits who said SNL would humanize Musk were onto something, though it's tough to criticize the humanization of any living, breathing person. I uh, talked about his mom coming on. I uh, said that none of this meta Musk riffing worked well as comedy. Well, I disagree. I think some was okay. Not brilliant. Uh, but also, none of it was worse than the expected SNL nonsense. So, this writer, obviously not a big fan of SNL. Um, Musk came off as just another celeb undergoing a PR ritual with enthusiasm but not inspiration. All right, I'll buy that. It's worth remembering that Musk wields influence outside of hype. He commands billions in capital and has credible designs for transforming human civilization altogether. Remember, he's also going to build these tunnels underneath the cities where you can get from, you know, L.A. to San Francisco uh, super fast without getting on a train. Yet, watching him perform sketches with little intrinsic comedic value, but lots of self-referentiality, his true significance becomes obscured. He comes to feel just like a celebrity. Someone who matters only because people feel he matters. That can be dangerous. Oh, come on. Lighten up, Atlantic. Lighten up, folks. It's not dangerous. It's, a, it's one of the wealthiest men in the world going on SNL. Now, I guess you could say, hey, Donald Trump went on SNL in 2015. And look what happened with him. But I don't think Elon Musk wants to run for office. I do think he wants to take over interplanetary travel and take over uh, car travel as well. But, you know, the marketplace will decide that, right? Either he builds great stuff, either his rockets are successful or they crash. Either Tesla becomes successful or it becomes a passing fad and other companies do it better. Well, hope you had a good weekend. Again, hope you had a chance to see Media Buzz. If you like what we do here, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, foxnewspodcast.com, or just get it directly on your Amazon device. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.